Welcome to First Unitarian Society of Minneapolis, the birthplace of Congregational Humanism. We carry on that tradition of free thought today, dedicated to promoting a free search for truth, meaning, and justice. Our web address is firstunitarian.org. I'm David Breeden, Senior Minister. Welcome. Not long ago, I uh, saw a very telling and instructive Twitter exchange, believe it or not. The first tweet read, I quickly became an atheist after leaving an Orthodox Christian faith. Five years later, I'm open to spirituality, but absolutely no organized religion. A response to that tweet read, I cannot get my head around what is meant by spirituality. Are we really talking about spirits in this day and age? LOL. The response came back, for me, spirituality is embracing the unknown with a sense of awe and childlike wonder. There's plenty we still don't know about life. I'm open to the strangeness of the universe without dogma. Now, I don't know a thing about those two tweeters, but I've been involved with atheists and agnostics for a long time, and I do see a generational divide between the two people in that exchange. The person expressing skepticism at the word spirituality appears to me to be a very typical atheist of my generation, the boomers. Now, why do I think that? Because that's the old atheist line that I've heard all my life. Strict materialism, yes, but a strict materialism that embraces a worldview of imagined human intellectual progress. The tweet says, essentially, we thinking people are over all that now, and everyone else will be soon as well. Further, that tweet claims that any thoughts to the contrary are laughable. The second tweeter is also an atheist. After all, they both care enough about the subject to belong to the American Atheist Association. But notice the subtle difference between the two attitudes. The first tweet expresses strong opposition to religious orthodoxy and organized religion. The last tweet expresses an openness to strangeness. That's what I want to look at today, these two very different attitudes. For individuals, the difference is mostly personality. But for institutions such as First Unitarian Society, the, whoop, the difference matters a lot. Oh, kicked over my water from Hot Springs, Arkansas. <laughs> Still acquire that because it's good for me. That's what I want to look at, though, and one of the touchstones I want to look at is from a writer from a long time ago named Lucretius, and he had this to say, if they decide to call the ocean Neptune or the grain Ceres and prefer to call liquor Bacchus, let them go on calling Earth Mother of Gods so long as they avoid infecting their minds with foul religion. Now, Lucretius is interesting because is it 
all religion that's foul or just foul religion that's foul. And that's the kind of poet he was. The point I hope to make today centers around how materialist and naturalist attitudes have changed over time. To help clarify this, I want to explore how humanism has changed since its first popularity in the early 20th century. This congregation has been humanist since 1916. Now, as I see it, everything in American religion changed after the media spectacle of the state of Tennessee versus John Thomas Scopes in the summer of 1925. The Scopes Monkey Trial, as it was known at that time, was an event that has left an indelible imprint on American uh, sociology, psychology, etc. The Scopes Trial underlined for many, both religious liberals and religious traditionalists, that natural selection would be the wedge that permanently split American relig religious thinking into two broad and irreconcilable camps. The position to take was not difficult for religious conservatives. They doubled down on what at the time was called the fundamentals, and thus was born fundamentalism. And you know, we all know that, inerrancy of the Bible, miracles are real, demons cause disease, social conservatism, and on. The liberal answer was not so easy to figure out. Humanists, many of whom were atheist or agnostic, doubled down on the science at the time, objective verifiability. Many humanists became strict materialists, and if you can't measure it, it don't exist. Interestingly enough, both of the extremes in the argument in those days were talking about the same kind of God concept, the monarchical European white guy in the sky. Fundamentalists thought that such a concept was the only way to stay true to the Bible, and humanists thought that that idea was just absurd. If you were a humanist here in Minneapolis, Minnesota, or a Southern Baptist in Biloxi, Mississippi, your position on the matter was clear. But what about those Methodists living right here in Minneapolis, Minnesota? What were they to think? The middle ground between those two hardline positions was a lot more difficult to articulate. The fallout from the Scopes Monkey Trial is still falling today, and I hasten to add it's not all about religion. It has become the center of American politics as well. That's what was going on with the first generation of humanists. Fast forward then to after the Second World War. There was little doubt in most people's minds that technology was a big winner in the war. Sure, the atom bomb, but also automatic bomb sites, synthetics, metal alloys, precise computer calculations, and importantly for the future, jet engines and rockets. After the war, federal money poured into America's universities. Science was in the catbird seat, and not coincidentally, humanism enjoyed its greatest and most widespread popularity at that time. So did mainline Protestantism, which more and more was making its peace with science and changing the way they saw God. Gone were the days when Methodists or Lutherans described the eternal flames of hell scorching sinners forever. 
Gone was the jealous, angry God that they had talked about. In the denominations that catered to the American middle classes, God became a jolly grandfather, someone who loved his children and wanted to make them happy. Religious liberals began to talk about an all-powerful God of the nice stuff. God is love. But that position leaves a very basic question. If God is all-powerful and all-nice all the time, whence cometh evil? A conservative theologian of that time period, H. Richard Niebuhr, summed up his assessment of what was happening among the liberal religious of the day. Quote, they were talking about a God without wrath, saving a people without sin, through Christ without a cross, end quote. Now, here's the place to remind ourselves of the politics of the Scopes Monkey trial. The lawyer for the defense was Clarence Darrow, a professed humanist whose father had been a Unitarian minister, but he even lost that much faith and became an undertaker. Now, some of you also know that Clarence Darrow was rumored to have joined this congregation, though we have no record that he ever actually attended here. His opponent, the prosecution, was William Jennings Bryan, former Secretary of State, three-time presidential candidate, and I would argue the greatest populist in American history. William Jennings Bryan was something you don't see anymore in American politics, except among African Americans. He was a political leftist who was also a sincere fundamentalist Christian. Even though he won the court case, William Jennings Bryan felt utterly humiliated by Darrow's line of questioning and died shortly thereafter of what I think nowadays would be considered a stroke. What wasn't clear at the time was that progressive liberal politics was beginning to eat its own. By that I mean that very poor, desperate people like my parents were, for example, need to believe in a wrathful God who will right all the wrongs of our world by throwing the rich and powerful oppressors into hell. And they need to believe that this grinding, spirit-killing world will end any day now with Jesus coming back to fix all of the social wrongs. A wrathful God is their hope for a future and for justice. The Scopes trial widened the chasm between the liberal haves and the populist have-nots. The populist movement previous to the Second World War had goals that were closely aligned with the goals of the liberal religious social gospel movement, and that was then uh, prevalent among the mainstream middle-class Protestant denominations. This was the coalition that would elect Franklin Roosevelt, an Episcopalian who loved the pomp of religion but had absolutely no interest whatsoever in theology. The sunny, happy, middle-class God continued to appeal to people who were succeeding in the wealthy post-war years. But many people were not succeeding in living the American dream, even in those affluent times. Then, in 1973, wage growth stopped for the average American worker and went into decline. It's no accident that the mid-1970s was the time when right 
wing Christianity began to be central to American politics. Right-wing Christianity reversed the trend that theologian H. Uh, Richard Niebuhr had derided, a God without wrath, saving a people without sin through Christ without a cross. Nope, the new politically conservative Christianity preached a wrathful God, a sinful people, and a suffering Christ that offered salvation or else. Liberal Protestant denominations doubled down and kept preaching their loving God and their eternity without hell, and those denominations went into a steep decline that continues and accelerates in our own time. People just are leaving. And just as liberal Christians doubled down on a happy God, many humanists doubled down on strict materialism. Which is my point. Neither of those groups were reading the room. Many Americans were just getting poorer and poorer every year, and they were desperate for any way out. For example, take a look at contemporary American entertainment. How much of it is science fiction, fantasy, supernatural escapism? In case you haven't noticed, there are zombies and chain mail and chainsaws everywhere on TV. So pre-World War II humanism, post-World War II humanism, and now the possibilities of a renewed non-suburban humanism in our day. That's what we're looking to. And here's the thing, humanism as a philosophy has the resources to face our troubled and troubling world. It's easy to talk about sociological effects when we look at the Scopes Monkey Trial or the Second World War. A much quieter revolution occurred with the publication back in 1980 of a book by George Lakoff and Mark Johnson, Metaphors We Live By. This book created the now extremely active an important academic field called cognitive linguistics. What Lakoff and Johnson demonstrate in the book is exactly what the title says. We live by metaphors, we live in metaphors, we find it almost impossible to think without metaphors. Up, down, in, out, our simplest and most common thoughts get structured by metaphors that we learn by osmosis by living in the culture that we live in. As Lakoff and Johnson phrase it, our ordinary conceptual system in terms of which we both think and act is fundamentally metaphorical in nature. And new metaphors are capable of creating new understandings and therefore new realities. Do let that sink in a moment. Now for many of us humanists, this is not a new or an exotic thought because classic humanism, going all the way back to 1916, uh, was very much about pragmatist philosophy. For pragmatists, ideas are tools. A tool is true if it works. Truth is socially constructed for pragmatists. Pragmatists draw a sharp distinction between a truth and a fact. A fact is measurable by anybody, anywhere. For example, the effects of gravity, that's a fact. They can be measured. Truths are socially constructed, which is why the contemporary pragmatist Richard Rorty famously said, truth is what your contemporaries let you get away with. Truth is what your contemporaries let you get away with. 
Now, Richard Rorty died in 2007, before the rise of Trump, but many consider him prescient in that he predicted the rise of a right-wing populist. People who haven't taken a hard look at pragmatist philosophy shout, wait a minute, that, that, that's moral relativism, postmodernism, but pragmatism is not those things, and the statement shows you why. Truth is what your contemporaries let you get away with. By using the word contemporaries, Rorty is pointing out that not only is truth socially constructed, but also that truth is the product of social construction within specific historical circumstances. Again, the Scopes trial set the pattern for the world we live in today. Religion has become politics in the United States. The populism of William Jennings Bryan is long dead and Christian nationalism has now taken its place. The greatest and most important virtue that pragmatism teaches us is intellectual humility. No, it's not true that everybody is right, whatever they happen to think, but it is true that reality is very different for different people in different cultural and geographical locations. Truth is what your contemporaries let you get away with in time and in place. The question is how to not allow certain groups to get away with what we see as untruths. And no, we haven't figured that one out yet. What does all the talk of pragmatism and religious fundamentalism mean in the real world? Well, the answer is a lot. The early pragmatists were intuiting something that cognitive linguistics has now demonstrated. The reality that each of us lives in is created by the metaphors we live in. Metaphors are the tools we use to create personal reality, and metaphors are introduced to us through our shared cultural context. We all co-create reality, as I've talked about many times. Therefore, if a human being grows up in a world soaked in the metaphors having to do with a certain sort of God concept, that person is very likely to see the world through those particular views. Cognitive science teaches us this is true. Pragmatism teaches us that it's natural and logical for human beings to use the tools that work for them within the reality they are forced to live in. The fact is, for some, a wrathful God is what they need in order to live a fulfilling life. For others, a loving God makes sense for them in living a fulfilling life. For others, the cosmos itself is all the God they need for a fulfilling life. And for others, the whole concept of any God makes no sense for them, and no God is what they need to live a fulfilling life. That is the truth as nearly as this old guy can figure it out, and I've been thinking about it for a few decades now. But as usual with such thoughts as that one, I wasn't the one to get there first. Lucretius said it a long time ago. If they decide to call the ocean Neptune or the grain Ceres and prefer to call liquor Bacchus, let them go on calling Earth Mother of Gods, so long as they avoid infecting their minds with foul religion. Thanks for listening. You can find much more about humanism, 
and what's happening at First Unitarian Society in Minneapolis by visiting our website at firstunitarian.org.